To love learning. To laugh. To love. To be loved. To see beauty. To understand. To bring grace. To the things that matter most. This is Psychology America with Dr. Alexandra. Welcome to my show. For every life stage, we have questions. Let's enhance our lives together as we explore the things that matter most. This episode is dedicated to Ginny's house, which provides 100% free therapy, truly free, with zero insurance involvement to abuse children and their caregivers. Learn more at Ginny'sHouse.org. Earlier this week, Mr. Neil Clark, retired English professor from Asheville, North Carolina, shared with me where the word panic comes from. Think of a half man, half goat. The bottom half is goat. That's a character from Greek mythology who was called the great god Pan and who ruled the forests and the animals in the woodlands. When's the last time you walked alone in a dark forest? Well, the fear that could suddenly come upon you in that situation was named Panic in the English language, named after the great god Pan. In modern-day psychology terms, people can experience what's called a panic attack, and panic is what this episode is about. I'd like to introduce my very special guest to you, Dr. Rob Zambrano of Stress and Anxiety Services of New Jersey, where he specializes in panic and also Tourette's Syndrome and Anxiety Spectrum Disorders. Dr. Zambrano, Rob, is the son of two immigrants from Colombia. He is like me. I'm also a first-generation American. He loves to sing and dance with his four-year-old son, and his personal hero is Mr. Rogers. Rob, before we begin about this topic of panic, for our international listeners, Can you describe the TV personality of Mr. Rogers and why he's your hero? Oh, absolutely. Uh, And uh, I'm I'm honored to actually start talking about my personal hero, Mr. Rogers. So he is a a children's television show uh, producer, um, and I I wouldn't call him a character so much in that he essentially played himself. Um, And so he he had an American television program on PBS for for many years. I think it might have been almost 30. Um, and Fred Rogers was sort of a really gentle, quiet soul. Um, and really so much about his show was completely child focused, but in terms of sort of helping children understand how special they are, how special everybody is in their own unique way. Um, and it it was something that I watched a lot as a child myself. Um, you know, I grew up in an environment where there weren't a lot of kids around actually. So I was somewhat isolated. And so having a guy like Fred Rogers every day, tell me, how special I was, how important I was, and say so in, you know, in a very soft, calm, reassuring voice um, was really important to me. And I think it's a voice that I've carried along in my head for for much of my life, that sort of soothing, relaxing gentleman that he was. He truly was one of the most beautiful and kind souls. If you've never seen Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, which is the name of his show, um, I'd recommend anybody just take a look on YouTube, see where you can find it. 
Yeah. There's just some wonderful stuff, beautiful lessons, and uh, just an inspiring guy. And I, and I think his desire, you know, he, he referred to everybody as his neighbor. Mm-hmm. Um, and he wanted to share kindness um, and help them feel special. And I, and I think that sort of imprinted itself in my brain in terms of a lifelong desire to, you know, want to help out my neighbors. And, mm-hmm. um, and so I think that's what led me to an interest in psychology, um, wanting to be a helper. Um, oh. And I think he inspired that in me. So, I, I, uh, you know, if, if in some small way I'm carry, carrying forward his good work, um, <laughs> then that's, that's a really reassuring and happy thought for me. He, he sure was very loving and magical in the best way. In, in his compassion and in the way he talked to children. It was pretty astounding. Okay, so panic. Yes, I, and by the way, I really love your description of where panic came from. I never knew that, and I'm, oh. abs- I'm absolutely borrowing that. Well, thank you, Mr. <laughs> Neil Clark. <laughs> so this is how my patients have described panic. It's, it goes something like this. Mm. Your heart is racing. You wonder, is this a heart attack? You can't breathe, and you feel like the world is crashing on you. You might have tingling in your fingers, too. Does this sound like panic to you? It absolutely sounds like panic. It's a pretty good description. Um, now, of course, you said it, um, and, and I think we both uh, maybe invoke Fred Rogers from time to time, and that we both, I guess, have, um, or at least try and pull off the sort of calm, soothing psychologist voice. Um, but usually when people describe panic, it's uh, you, you can hear sort of the pain of the experience in their voice. There's something really intense in the description. Um, one of the things I've found over the years is if I ask a patient, um, have you ever had a panic attack? If they say they're not sure, my guess is that they probably haven't because <laughs> it's, a, it's a pretty distinct and powerful experience. It's, mm-hmm. um, it's traumatic um, in that very often one of the thoughts happening is either I'm going crazy or I'm going to die. Yeah. Um, Dread, a, a feeling of dread. Absolutely, mm-hmm. and a lot of patients. A lot of patients have come to me over the years, having gone to the emergency room first, having gone to various doctors, thinking there's something wrong with my heart. There's you're you're missing it. Um, and after enough doctors tell them, we think this might be a panic attack. This we think this is psychological in nature. A lot of my patients find their way to me through that avenue. So, what is it not? Um, you know, I, I think sometimes people misconstrue or misdescribe what a panic attack is in that Mm -hmm. they'll sometimes say, um, you know, I had a burst of anxiety. I felt uncomfortable or worried. And and that's not quite panic. And I was actually um, thinking a little bit about my experience of getting to know you. Um, We shared an email exchange about doing this podcast. And Mm -hmm. the funny thing is I've done some media over the years and I know in advance of that, I'm always pretty anxious, (laughs) which is weird because typically when I actually get to just when the green lights on and I get to start talking, everything feels fine. Um, or at least relatively fine. Um, but the idea of presenting is always pretty scary to me, especially, you know, with a fellow psychologist, um, and potentially a pretty educated audience about psychological issues. So, you know, a lot of those insecurities will start to pop up in in the form of what we call anxiety. Um, thoughts like I'm not good enough for this. Um, you know, and, and so as I found myself getting anxious, I listened to some of the other podcasts that you've done. I listened to one with, um, the executive director of our practice, Dr. Wegg on OCD. And I listened to it for a few minutes and it was pretty good, but realizing, 
when when I've known Dr. Wegg for 14 years, uh, so I've heard every story under the sun about OCD that he can spin. He's I've read his book, um, and so <laughs> I switched mm-hmm. from his podcast to uh, Dr. Simon Rigo, who um, we both knew from graduate school. Um, Dr. Rigo was a couple of years ahead of me, um, and always really impressive guy. But uh, you know, he, he's really bright, very athletic smooth voice uh cultured <laughs> on top of that throw in throwing the fact that he's canadian so they have that just little extra politeness <laughs> to him <laughs> he um, does and i listened to the whole podcast and i thought this is wonderful but oh man i can't i can't pull off the simon voice <laughs> and i'm not gonna sound as cool and smooth as simon so i got a little anxious and i remember after listening to simon's podcast i sort of pumped myself on up, up and I said, you can do this. You don't have to be as good as Simon. You just have to be as good as you. And that's okay. And that's okay. Uh, you know, I'm sure Mr. Rogers would say I'm okay too. <laughs> so I emailed you back and I said, okay, let's, let's do the panic presentation. And I didn't hear back from you for a couple of days. Um, and I kind of felt like, Oh, I'm off the hook. Maybe she looked at my bio and thought that eh, maybe not. <laughs> so, um, so there was a bit of relief. And then, one day I checked my email and there it's you. And she's like, and you say, well, let's do the panic presentation. And right away I noticed my heart started pounding. <laughs> I, I was short of breath. Uh, my stomach turned into knots. But I would not say that was a panic attack because the missing element was that felt normal. It made mm-hmm. sense to me, right? Oh, okay. I, um, all these insecurities are suddenly unexpectedly out of the blue hitting me. And I'm mm-hmm. having a bodily, a normal bodily reaction to mm-hmm. that idea, to that thought. Um, and I, I think what's helpful and what might differentiate a panic attack from not a panic attack is, or at least the, the initial experience, is the idea of, okay, this makes sense. This is normal to have these physiological responses to the situation. Um, and so, you know, I've done cognitive behavioral therapy for a very long time. I know how to talk people down and teach them how to challenge their thoughts. And so I just remembered... You've done tons of presentations. Alexander mm-hmm. sounded really nice in her, in her podcast. <laughs> She's not going to do a Mike Wallace 60 Minutes gotcha interview on me. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm probably going to be okay. She probably wants me to sound good too because then her podcast sounds good. So <laughs> take it down a notch, Rob. You're okay. So Woo-hoo. I took a deep breath and I just said, don't talk too fast. Don't sound too Jersey and you'll be all right. Um <laughs> And then within a few minutes, I kind of went back to, I went into the kitchen, started washing some dishes or whatever, and uh, the feeling was gone. Yes. Uh, and so, so that wasn't a panic attack because I wasn't really frightened or it didn't come out of nowhere. It didn't terrify me. At no point did I think I was in some form of danger. Um, but if you'll mm-hmm. indulge me, I'll, I'd like to share a story with you about um, the first time I actually had a panic attack, which is... Oh, please do. Uh, Sure. I, I share with my, my, my clients that, you know, I, I've actually, it's ironic that I work at a place called Stress and Anxiety Services and I treat anxiety disorders because I'm generally, as you know, aside from a minor um, pre-performance jitters, not a terribly anxious person. I'm pretty laid back overall about most things. Um, and so the idea of sort of having a lot of anxiety, I understand how to treat it, um, but it's not something I have a ton of experience with. Um, and in and that includes panic attacks. But about, I'd say about 10 years ago, um, I'm a huge baseball fan. It's, uh, I think I joked with you, it's practically a religion for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and you so did. one of my life quests was to go to every stadium around the country, every uh, major league baseball stadium around the country. And so in the process of knocking that off about 10 years ago, 
I went to Houston to catch a baseball game, and I stayed with a friend who um, at the time had a studio apartment uh, while he was establishing himself in Houston. So we went and caught a game. It was really hot. I may have had a beer, but I don't drink very often, so the mm-hmm. one beer had me feeling <laughs> really lousy. So I basically came back to his studio, crashed on the couch, and had a not-so-good night's sleep. The next morning, I got up and flew to uh, Arlington to catch a game uh, to see the Texas Rangers. Mm-hmm. And I, I, if I remember correctly, it was an afternoon game. And as soon as the game was over, for some reason, I guess in an attempt to torture myself and save some money, I drove to the airport and hopped on another flight to Colorado <laughs> to catch a game the following day. Um, that was a lot. So when I, a lot going on. So I, uh, So when I got to Colorado, I was pretty tired. And so I said, well... Let me go get a Red Bull or something with caffeine to keep me up for the drive to the hotel room. So, okay, I chugged a Red Bull. I got to the hotel room. Um, And at the time, I was uh, about to start a new diet. Um, And I, uh, along with that diet, got some of those diet pills that they say speed up your metabolism. (laughs) So um, it was late uh, from the flight, so I drove to the hotel room. I took some of those pills um, that sped up my metabolism. And I sat down to watch a movie on TNT. If I remember correctly, it was one of those movies with J-Lo um, where she played, a, an, I think, an abused wife who left her husband and the husband was stalking her and she learns to self-defense. And so I'm watching this movie and it's, you know, it's, it's not a great movie, but it's got some tension in it. Um, and as it goes, I'm going, wow, this movie's really, this is more tense than I expected. This is making me pretty anxious. <laughs> And you know, that's about the time where I guess the combination of the diet pills and the um, the over-the-counter diet pills and the and the Red Bull kicked in, and my heart's really racing and I can't catch my breath. I'm like, I got to turn off this movie. This is too much for me. <laughs> um, and then suddenly it kind of dawned on me. Oh no, I drank Red Bull. I took these pills, and my brain started to say, "You may be having a heart attack right now," which was really scary. Um, and just like you described, my fingers went numb. I couldn't mm. think straight. I couldn't catch my breath. And uh, I'm just sitting in my hotel room thinking, this is a really stupid way to die. Um, so, so you <laughs> did think you might you might be having a heart attack or you, you had that fear just the way panic folks can, can feel. The thought crossed my mind. And I mm-hmm. think also the thought, how embarrassing if I'm just having a panic attack and I call an ambulance. Um, so I tried sitting there and breathing, which I don't actually advise my clients to do. And I'll explain that later that, you know, where that you just sort of have to ride out the storm. So I left the hotel room. I went for a walk. There was a pool out there and I sat by the pool and kind of stuck my feet in the pool and the pool had the added benefit of being by the parking lot. So if I do happen to keel over, maybe somebody will pull up and help me, um, and eventually, after a good 30 minutes, the adrenaline rush had passed, and uh, I was somewhat back to normal. And I said, oh, wow, that was a panic mm. attack. That's my first panic attack ever. Um, and in a strange way, I'm glad I experienced it, because when you work with a lot of panic, it's uh, not that it's necessary, but it's helpful to have a sense of what your patients go through. So I agree, yes. You know, if something's going to go wrong in my life, I tend to move in the direction of anxiety. Mm. But that can be a gift for me to experience that and know what that's like for my patients as well. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It sounds like you're advising your patients about the concept of surrendering to the panic attack because part of what 
brings on a panic attack once people have had a panic attack is the fear of the next panic attack. Exactly. So that's where panic attacks roll into what we call panic disorder. So living in fear of having more panic attacks, avoiding situations that you think will cause you to have panic attacks. Um, and over, and essentially what I try and explain to my patients the first time I meet them is what really kind of happens is that your body experienced a trauma. Um, and it's really very unpleasant and having gone through it, I know what it's like and not, and I know the thought, I don't want to feel this way again. Um, but the problem is when you experience a trauma, um, as trauma victims will tell you, um, they become hypervigilant of situations and sensations that remind them of the trauma. So sometimes you become aware of sensations that otherwise you might miss. So for example, right now I'm, you and I are having a back and forth conversation. I'm talking a lot. And uh, maybe at, the, at times, if I let out a long sentence or a long paragraph without catching my breath, I might my brain, my subconscious might notice, oh, I'm a little short of breath right now. Um, or I might notice, you know, mm -hmm. I'm performing right now, and so I'm a little bit more amplified, and so my heart might be beating a little faster than normal. Mm -hmm. But because I don't have panic disorder, my body is not hypervigilant. It doesn't notice it. It only notices it now because I'm describing it for the purposes of the conversation. But ordinarily, I'd have that those experiences being short of breath, maybe my heart skipping a beat, mm -hmm. and it, it, it just wouldn't register. But when you have a history of having experienced panic attacks and then you develop panic disorder, your body's on guard all the time. Um, and so then it notices those, those sensations. And I try and teach my patients that what happens next is your body overreacts to those sensations because if, if an alarm goes off, it says, this means I'm going to have a panic attack. Um, and maybe even it means I could die or go crazy. And that's a pretty terrible thing to have happen. I'm surprised that, well, before I say that part, mm. regarding the surrender piece, what I tell yeah. my patients is to remember that, that the panic attack will have a beginning and a middle and an end. Exactly. That it won't go on forever. All things are temporary including panic attacks. And that's um, part of the way that you surrender to it is that though it feels dreadful, mm -hmm. it, it, it will come to an end. Sure. And, and, mm -hmm. and of course for patients, it's, you know, typical, either response would be easier said than done that I'm supposed to accept mm -hmm. this really horrendous and terrible experience. Um, and uh, also just tongue in cheek say, yep, that, that that's really the best approach. Um, but, we're going to do some things that are going to teach you to respond differently to these sensations. Uh, one of the stories that I often share with my clients is, uh, you know, in, in our practice at Stress and Anxiety Services, we, we do a lot of teaching through metaphor and storytelling. Yes. Um, and so, you know, we help them understand that, you know, um, to think, to conceptualize a panic attack, and for a lot of people, the first panic attack is kind of out of the blue. They can't quite understand why it happens. They just know that it did happen. It was really upsetting. So I, so I say to them, you know, when I try and help them understand what's going on, why are they experiencing these repeated panic attacks? Um, I say, imagine what it's like to walk around in your neighborhood. It's a, it's a neighborhood you feel safe in. Uh, you know the streets, you know the neighbors, you know what cars belong there. Um, and you feel comfortable and you're safe there. And you're walking down the street and suddenly one day a mugger jumps out from behind a car and hits you in the knee with a lead pipe, bashes you in the head, and you're injured pretty badly. What do you think your experience would be like the next time you're walking down that street? It might feel really different. This street that you've walked down always comfortably, um, suddenly 
you know, uh, you're walking down that street again and feeling kind of nervous. And then because you're feeling nervous, your brain says, well, in the animal world, if you're nervous, it must mean that something is wrong or something bad could be about to happen. So let's be prepared. And then you're walking down that street that you walked down many times and suddenly a squirrel jumps out from, uh, from a branch and your reactions to that squirrel is going to be radically different than had that mugging not happened a while back. And then you walk a little bit further and maybe you see a shadow or somebody unfamiliar gets out of the car. You're going to feel a little bit more nervous, right? Um, and so in this metaphor, you know, all the things that you suddenly start noticing, those are the physiological symptoms that, again, we're overreacting to. Yes. And so really one of the core pieces of treating panic is something we call symptom cue exposure, or in some literature, you'll see it referred to as interoceptive exposure. And what that is, is we're trying to have the client desensitized to a number of physical cues that people commonly uh, associate with panic. So, you know, if you associate the feeling of lightheadedness with a panic attack, I might have somebody in my office shake their head loosely from side to side with their eyes open, and that produces a mm -hmm. sensation of disorientation. Some might say, um, I feel like blood's rushing to my head. So I might have them sit with their head between their knees and then after 30 seconds and lift their head up quickly to produce lightheadedness. Mm -hmm. I might have them run in place um, or do some jumping jacks to produce heart, your heart pounding or shortness of breath. You could have somebody tense all their muscles at once uh, to produce muscle fatigue or muscle weakness if that's something they associate mm -hmm. with it. We can have them hold their breath, um, spin in place if nausea and dizziness are part of it, hyperventilate on purpose if that's a, a, a symptom mm -hmm. that triggers panic. And what we're trying to do is we're trying to teach our clients to have a new relationship with those symptoms, to sort of to accept them, to not catastrophize them, to normalize them to some degree, uh, and to understand that really what's happening when you have panic attacks is you are overreacting to some of these sensations. And so if we can desensitize you to some of these desensitize you to some of these sensations, you might be less likely to have that catastrophic overreaction to those sensations. And therefore less likely to panic. But of course, the irony mm -hmm. of the therapy is also saying, but you have to be willing to panic anyway. I'm surprised, though, that you advise against them doing something like square breathing because mm. I've, I've always learned that our breathing has a big part of this. So folks will be anxious before mm -hmm. the panic attack and they'll start shallow breathing. Yeah. In fact, I remember one supervisor way back when I was a permit holder uh -huh. telling me that if we wanted, he and I could induce a panic attack right in his office uh -huh. just just through shallow breathing. So I'd love to hear yeah. your thoughts on that. Sure. I mean, uh, we part of the protocol is teaching people relaxation skills and meditation skills. And that's actually something I do early on. But mm -hmm. a lot of what I try to explain to clients is if the spirit of the, set, uh, of, of the therapy is to not resist panic feelings, to not try and make those feelings go away, but sort of sit in acceptance of them, then relaxation skills might be used contrary to what we're trying to do in therapy. And so what we know is that a lot of panic attacks can be induced by heightened anxiety. So people who mm -hmm. live in heightened states of anxiety tend to be more hypervigilant and therefore more likely to panic. So I do like teaching people relaxation skills for a couple of reasons. One, um, it gives them some sense of control. I have a skill that I can use. And when people feel that they're skilled, that they have mm -hmm. coping skills that they can use, they're more likely to take risks. They're more likely to fully engage in exposure mm -hmm. um, and do some of the things that I'm going to ask them to do that are difficult because at least they say, 
I know how to manage this. But the way I look at relaxation is this is more about before you panic. Yeah, it's a prevention. Exactly. So what we're saying is it's perfectly okay to try not to panic. But there's almost a point of no return where you then have to realize here we are, <laughs> right? That uh, mm-hmm. and, and so when I describe exposure therapy to people, I often talk about the metaphor of riding a roller coaster, right? Um, and so, you know, how does exposure therapy work? Why does desensitization work? It's similar to riding a roller coaster. When If you have a fear of roller coaster, we might have you ride some small ones repeatedly until you desensitize to that, and we'll work our way up to big ones, right? Mm-hmm. Now, I wouldn't tell a patient who's in line for the roller coaster not to take a few deep breaths to do some relaxation skills to try and be in the moment. Um, to use cognitive therapy skills to remind themselves of certain things. But then we also have to accept that once you get on the roller coaster and that um, safety harness clicks in, you're in for a rough ride initially. And that you can try all the square breathing you want, but the point of this exercise is to prove to yourself that you can survive these feelings. And so during the roller coaster ride, I don't want you to do any square breathing. I don't want you to try and ward off anxiety. I want you to prove to yourself I can handle this. I can ride these sensations out. And panic attacks and roller coaster rides are both temporary events. And, you know, if they're prolonged, it might be because we're psychologically doing something wrong. We're holding on to the trauma a little bit longer than necessary. Uh, We're repeating it in our head. Therefore, we're perpetuating the cycle. But panic attacks in and of themselves shouldn't take that long. And so uh, a big part of them not prolonging that process is teaching people, you can handle this. You've got this. Mm-hmm. Um, so once and, they and so, do the exposure, it sounds like once they face the difficult process of exposing themselves to it so that they can uh-huh. overcome it, tell me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like you would not be against them using breathing or some other method because they've already yeah. faced it and they've already learned how to surrender to it. Right. You got through it. Now let's, uh, now let's do some relaxing stuff. Right. But never, um, you know, um, uh, a colleague of mine once coined it as, um, experiential avoidance, but we don't want to engage in any experiential avoidance of the actual panic attack. Hmm. Right. Um, that there's value in the patient being able to see, I can get through this. I can survive this. I'll be okay. Um, and so we don't want them doing anything that's suppressing the experience, that's avoiding the experience. It's, I can handle this experience. I can do things beforehand to maybe make it less likely to occur. But once I get on that roller coaster, if I'm, if I'm afraid of roller coasters, all the breathing is going out the door. And I'm just going to have to be scared. And then I get off and hopefully I can go, that was scary, but whew, I'm glad I'm okay now. Um, and that's when you can take your your nice deep breaths uh, and do a little distraction, what have you. Mm. And I also tell my patients before doing any kind of exposure work, not to take any sort of fast-acting anxiolytic medication. So that would be things like Xanax, Ativan, Klonopin. These are the kind of medications people take when they're worried about having a panic attack. So very often, let's say if they have a fear of flying, somebody might take uh, an Ativan 30 minutes before getting on a plane to try and handle those... um, sensations more effectively. It sort of dulls the experience. Um, And I certainly don't begrudge someone doing that. But what I always try and explain to people is that if the spirit of symptom cue exposure therapy and exposure therapy in general is to teach yourself, I can handle these sensations, I can handle these feelings. We don't want them taking medication before they come into the office to do that good work, because we also don't want them associating the idea, I got through this, but only because I had this stuff in my system versus 
Um, no, I was able to tolerate these feelings because I, I established a different response and relationship to these sensations. Yeah, that doesn't give them a chance to face the fear. But I also want to mention, I, and I completely understand why you don't want them to take that medication during this part of the therapy, right? Because they're right. just they're just escaping. But I want to mention in general, um, my listeners know I'm not against medications. And in fact, um, I studied two extra years postdoc of clinical psychopharmacology so that hopefully one day I can also prescribe. But um, I want to mention that the first line of treatment for panic disorder is not medication. It's psychotherapy, just like what you're talking about. Thank you so much for saying that. You know, a lot of patients ask me, can I do this without medication? And if I'm honest with them, I'd say I'd prefer you try, actually. Um, And then, you know, if we find that we really think that you might need something to help you get over some, you know, to, to sort of get you over that hump, then we'll look into it. But, uh, but you know, I like you, you know, um, uh, I think um, people from, from the, the uh, graduate schools that we went to practice the scientist-practitioner model. And so all the research says that the combination um, of medication and um, empirically supported treatments are the way to go. But yeah. there's also robust research that says going without the medication is also pretty, pretty good. Yeah, certainly for panic. I mean, for each disorder, it's different on what's, what right. is the first line of treatment, what's the second line of treatment. And in some disorders, you do want to medicate as the first line of treatment, but not the case, with, not the case with panic. I'm really, I'm really glad you brought that up. That's, that's really an important point to, for the audience. Any other coping ideas that you use with your patients on panic, Rob? Yeah, I'm, I'm a big fan of meditation. It's something that's been a personal part of my life for a long time. Um, I'm very attracted to acceptance and commitment therapy concepts and mindfulness. In my free time, I spend a lot of time sort of reading about, well, actually, if I'm complete, full disclosure, uh, now, since I have a four-year-old, I rarely read anything. <laughs> so it's a lot of um, reading articles here and there. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'll, I'll catch a lot of sort of memes about Buddhism and compassion-focused therapy and things like that. So I do like to incorporate that in, in terms of sort of the work I do with my patients. Um, but the idea of meditation is also not experiential avoidance. It's being able to sit with thoughts and feelings um, with a spirit of complete acceptance. Um, okay, this is happening now, and I'm not going to judge it. I'm just going to observe it uh, in a somewhat detached way, I guess. I also love acceptance and commitment therapy. I, I love it how you choose your values and move towards those and remember yeah. those. Yeah. And, and, I, and I think that's a really important part of panic treatment as well, because so many sufferers of panic disorder, they withdraw from really important elements of life, um, things that they used to be able to do, but, that, but because of the fear of experiencing those sensations again, they, they back away from them. Mm. And so, you know, in acceptance commitment therapy, you emphasize, okay, what, as you said, what are your values? What are you not doing? Um, and you know, you combine some motivational interviewing. What are you not doing? What is, what is panic robbing you of? And might it be worth it to experience these sensations, especially now that you've gone through a protocol where you've proven to yourself, you can handle them and you're learning how to not react to them. Is it worth, however, experiencing some version of these sensations, if it means you get back to living the life that you value and doing all the things that you want. Um, mm. And that, I think, becomes a lot easier for clients uh, to get to that stage of exposure, you know, um, in vivo exposure, going to the places and doing the things that trigger 
anxiety that they think will lead to panic. I think it's a lot easier if a client has already done the symptom cue exposure where they've learned how to accept certain physiological sensations. I know I keep repeating this point, but it's really, I teach my patients all the time. It's all about not overreacting to normal, non-dangerous physical sensations. Right. And you're also very interested in Tourette's syndrome. Yes. Yes. Um, I know the episode is not about this, but I wanted to give you a chance to share a bit about that and why you're interested in that. Absolutely. Uh, You know, it's one of the things that it's a really amazing, humbling disorder. Um, Through it, I've met some really fantastic kids and adults who have this disorder. So to describe it, essentially Tourette's is, um, you know, people who are diagnosed with Tourette's have a combination of motor skills and I'm sorry, motor tics and vocal tics. Um, So with vocal tics, essentially it's involuntary noises. Uh, so it could be words, phrases, sounds, any kind of uh, sound that your vocal cords can make um, or that your nose can make could be considered a vocal tick. Um, and a motor tick would be involuntary movements um, that, that people sometimes engage in. Um, and so think of it almost as a dysregulation of the central nervous system. Yes. Your body sends sensation, uh, your, your brain, I'm sorry, sends um, messages to your body to do these things that don't quite make sense. And the gatekeeper in the brain isn't functioning as effectively as possible. So sufferers of Tourette syndrome, um, therefore engaging in involuntary or semi-voluntary vocalizations and and motor movements. And I, I got involved with it because when you work with a lot of OCD cases, you tend to see Tourette's. There's a lot of overlap in that. Um, you know, the way we describe it is most people with OCD don't have Tourette's, but uh, a significant number of Tourette's patients do have OCD. So they, the years, they both involve like the, uh, the gatekeeper of the brain Absolutely. not doing its job. Absolutely. So, uh, you know, and, and so, and the therapy is essentially very similar that, you know, with OCD, the name of the game is exposure response prevention. Um, with, uh, motor takes and vocal takes, it's what we call habit reversal training. Uh, so teaching people to be aware of the urges to engage in the behavior and trying to teach them incompatible responses that would block that behavior in hopes of, teaching them either how to manage it more effectively or if we're really lucky, extinguishing those ticks. Now, because it's a neurological disorder, we don't sell it as a cure. You know, we can extinguish a tick and a different one's going to pop up in some form at some point, but then you use the same techniques to manage those ticks. Can you give so, an example um, yeah. of incompatible behavior? Oh, sure. Um, so with vocal ticks, they're, they're typically all kind of the same. So, um, and if you want, you can even try uh, on your end uh, of, of things. Um, so a vocal tick, um, so let's say if you were to, to utter a phrase, right, the uh, an incompatible behavior would be inhaling while trying to utter that phrase. So it's, it's, oh, it's relatively impossible to speak while inhaling, right? So if you want, you can try and say your name um, while inhaling, and I'll, I'll give you a shot. Go ahead, <laughs> see how it works. Alexandra. Right. Could you hear that? <laughs> I did a little bit. Oh, you're, an, you're, you're better than most at this. <laughs> but a lot of times people find that, okay, it kind of blocks a vocalization. So that would be a block of a vocal tick. Um, in terms of a motor tick, um, sort of a common example might be if you have eye movements that involve rapid blinking, it would be uh, practicing blinking extra slow on purpose when you feel that urge to break, to blink extra fast. Mm-hmm. If it's a motor tick that involves uh, having your hands shoot up as if like, you know, you're calling out in class, it might be something like um, 
pushing your shoulder downwards instead of upwards, sort of a competing response. So think of it as sort of almost mm-hmm. like a counterbalance. And, you know, over the years, uh, the, these are kids who, who really struggle, and, and they're, but they've also been some of the most inspiring, cool, nice kids that I've met over the years. So it's really something that's been really, really rewarding to, to treat. And, uh, and I think it's an underserved population because a lot of people um, assume that they wouldn't know what to do. Uh, but it's, it's, it's not, you know, I, I often explain the, the therapy itself isn't rocket science. Um, it's, you know, the way I explained it, it sounds pretty simple. It's really just sort of getting a lot of reps in there and, and getting comfortable doing it. Um, but it's, it's really is a wonderful population to work with. So thank you for asking me about that. Oh, yes. Before we get off, I have to mention yes. something to you. <laughs> I had asked you to send me a description of yourself, and I couldn't believe it when when you said that Mr. Rogers is your hero. I laughed because my sweetheart is always telling me that I am the female version of Mr. Rogers. Oh my God, that's so amazing. See? <laughs> yeah, I just thought that was funny. We have the something in common there. Yeah. <laughs> so thank you. Uh, before we get off, please tell listeners how they can find you. Absolutely. So um, the website for our, um, for our practice is www.stressandanxiety.com which uh, we were really lucky we snatched that one up before it went away. Um, so stressandanxiety.com. We have two offices, one in East Brunswick, New Jersey, where I work out of, and another one in Florham Park. Um, all the doctors in our practice do the same kind of work, as you mentioned at the top, OCD, panic disorder, anxiety spectrum, PTSD. Uh, I'm probably the one Tourette's expert in the practice. Um, oh, uh, body-focused repetitive behaviors. So that, that's sort of our niche, and we're proud of the work we do. Yeah, I really enjoyed talking to you. Thank you for coming on the show. Thank you so very much. I really appreciate it. This was a lot of fun. I don't know why I was so nervous. (laughs) (laughs) If you enjoyed this episode of Psychology America with Dr. Alexandra, show your support by leaving an awesome rating on iTunes. If you'd like to share your comments or ideas about this podcast, follow us on Facebook under Psychology America. Lastly, Dr. Alexandra has written an inspiring children's book entitled There's Always Hope a story about overcoming, which is beautifully illustrated by Brianna Giasulo. There's Always Hope, a story about overcoming, teaches children about finding joy and gratitude, even when things don't go exactly as planned, and can be found at psychologyamerica.com or amazon.com.